0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash
1: audioboom. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. For today's story, we head to Scotland and one of my favorite cities, Edinburgh. When a well-known Edinburgh pub landlord goes missing... There are fears that his links to the criminal underworld may have contributed to his disappearance and the police investigation in this case is wide and varied. In today's episode we come across two of the most feared Scottish gangsters ever to have set foot in the country and some of what we hear appears to be straight from the pages of an Ian ranking novel. Before we begin, let's put the story into context. In January 2003, The UK number one was Sounds of the Underground by Girls Aloud. And at number two, it was one of those songs that will sound as amazing 50 years from now as it does today and be treasured by future generations. It was, of course, the Cheeky Girls with the cheeky song, brackets, touch my bum, close brackets. In the US, Eminem topped the charts with Lose Yourself. In the news this month, music legend Pete Townsend of The Who was arrested for possessing indecent images of children, for which he was eventually cleared. Sometimes, I guess it's best to just say nothing. The Space Shuttle Columbia took off for mission STS-107, which tragically would be its final one. Columbia disintegrated 16 days later on re-entry. In the Super Bowl, Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat Oakland Raiders, and in the Australian Open Tennis, it was double success for the US as Agassi won the men's event and Serena Williams beat her sister Venus in the women's final. And finally, another country joined us in the 21st century as Belgium legally recognised same-sex marriage. I struggle to believe I am part of the same species as those people who still oppose such basic legislation. Maybe it was their ancestors who, before the car came along, were calling for faster horses. Have you been to Edinburgh? It's a beautiful, vibrant city with around half a million residents and I've had some amazing times there, especially at festival time when you can pack your days with the most incredible variety of shows. Whatever you're into, you'll never be short of stuff to do. Notorious criminals from Edinburgh's past include Deacon Brodie, head of a trades guild and Edinburgh city councillor by day, but a burglar by night who is said to have been the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's story the strange case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, and murderers Birkin Hare, who delivered fresh corpses for dissection to the famous autonomist Robert Knox. Today, though, the previously colourful dock area of Leith has undergone a major transformation, and it's now a buzzing port district, home to the hip creatives, and long-time locals are still there, of course. The waterfront is lined with seafood bistros and pubs in the shore area, But like any large city, you don't need to scratch too far below the surface to discover a very different world. It's often dog walkers, isn't it? It was 4pm on Friday the 10th of January 2003 when the man walking his dog saw something out of the corner of his eye down an embankment running from the footpath on which he was walking. On closer inspection, he took a deep breath as he realised that he was looking at a dead body. Quite unable to comprehend what he had just seen, he immediately called the police. The dog walker had been walking close to his home, to the southwest of Edinburgh, when he made the grim discovery, on the west side of the embankment of the A1, running from Musselburgh to Miller Hill, just by the retail site Kened Park, which was built on the site of the former New Craig Hall Colliery. When police arrived at the scene, they discovered the badly decomposed body of a man height 5 foot 6, and estimated in his mid-40s. He was lying in light woodland. It looked like he'd been there for a while. Detectives immediately feared that due to the location of the body, the man had been murdered. They believed that the body could have been dumped from the road above, which would mean a vehicle had had to stop on the grass verge just before the exit sign to Kinnard Park. There's a steep slope and a 20 foot drop to where the body was discovered in shrubbery. The other possibility is that the lower old mucklets to Musselborough Road, which runs under the bypass, may have been used. Their immediate task was to identify the body, which had no ID on it at all, and had been lying exposed to the weather for so long that detectives and forensic experts struggled to identify the man. There weren't obvious signs of gun or knife wounds, but eventually police confirmed that the body was Billy Sibold, a 48-year-old pub landlord who'd been missing since the 8th of October the year before. He had, indeed, been murdered. He'd been stabbed multiple times in a violent and substantial attack and it looked as though he'd put up a fierce fight for his life. Police were certain that he'd been murdered elsewhere and then dumped on the embankment from a passing car. Billy was married with three young sons, his youngest just nine years old. His oldest son, 25-year-old Craig, said, At least now we know what has happened and now we can lay him to rest. For the first week he was missing, it wasn't out of character, because my dad often went away. But as time went on and there was no contact, I knew that something was seriously wrong. He was so family-orientated that he wouldn't just go without contact. Detectives immediately spoke of their frustration with the lack of leads, as they were sure that a number of people knew exactly what had happened to Billy. Detective Chief Inspector John McFarlane who headed up the team of 20 officers carrying out the investigation. Acknowledged that many of Billy's acquaintances may be reluctant to deal with the police, but he asked them to give detectives a chance to solve the murder. He said, This is not justice. This is no way for anybody to die, whether some people like this man or not. Billy Sibold had a lot of friends in life, and it's time for them to stand up and be counted. Come forward and speak to the police. He added, Billy was extremely well known in the area and was wearing very distinctive clothes with a light coloured three quarter length raincoat, beige trousers and brown Timberland boots when he disappeared. I would ask people to come forward and give us a try and not to dismiss their own position as being little use to the police. Some of his friends have been fairly cooperative but I do think there is more scope for them to be even more cooperative. There was no shortage of rumours in the Titanic community about why Billy had died, including that it had been related to a drugs deal. But his son Craig said, I'm absolutely disgusted with these reports. They've devastated and destroyed my family. This was not a normal loss we've had to endure. It was an unnatural death, and it's been hard listening to all the gossip and innuendo. He appealed for anyone with information to come forward, adding, My dad knew so many people and he was always there for his friends. Somebody, anybody who has any information, should come forward. He continued that the events of the past three months have been particularly difficult for his younger brothers, nine-year-old Liam and Paul, who was 14. Their characters have changed. They are much quieter boys. My dad, he was a big family man, and this has brought the whole family closer together. Detectives began their investigation of the day that Billy went missing. He'd been at home at the Poppin pub in Joppa, just to the east of Edinburgh city centre. He'd lived there with his wife and children since taking over the pub in December 2001. The pub was doing good business and it had a reputation as a fun place to spend an evening. Billy was a popular man on good terms with locals and new customers. By all accounts, he was a faithful and devoted husband and an excellent father to his three boys. He was a, well, a snazzy dresser who was well known for his love of brash, chunky gold jewellery and just having a good time. He was a great landlord, the life and soul of the party. Every Tuesday, Billy and his wife Julie went out for dinner and on Tuesday the 8th of October 2002, this was no exception. Julie Sibald was just getting ready to go out with her husband. Everything was as normal. It was just another day. Julie saw Billy talking on his mobile just before they were due to leave. It was just a brief conversation. After he ended the call, Billy told Julie that he had to attend an unexpected business meeting so he'd not be able to go for dinner that evening. This wasn't unusual for Julie. She knew that Billy had other business interests and they didn't involve the sort of people he would like his family to know. She respected that there were some parts of Billy's businesses that he had to deal with alone. A few minutes later, at approaching 8pm, a car pulled up outside the pub. Julie looked outside and saw men in the car, none of whom she recognised. Billy kissed his wife on the cheek and with a quick see you later, he left the pub and strolled over to the car and got in. It was the last time that Julie saw her husband alive. With even the most basic investigation into Billy's past, Police realised this wasn't likely to be a murder due to Billy arguing with a customer, a neighbour, friend or family. It looked like it was a professional job done by someone who knew the very business of killing, a contract hit. Some of the very distinctive clothes and jewellery that Billy wore were missing from his body when it was found. If it had just been the expensive DuPont lighter and thick gold chain and bracelet that he'd worn the night he went missing, then it might have been put down to murder and robbery. Billy's clothes were missing as well, like the unusual Gantt jacket he bought in the US, which had a decent resale value. Despite all police inquiries to locate these clothes, there was nothing, so detectives knew they'd been disposed of to try and keep anyone from discovering Billy's identity. The final clue that convinced police that this was an organised hit was when the only car stolen in Edinburgh that night was found burned out, close to where Billy's body was discovered. There were no clues to be found in the vehicle, none at all, which again strongly suggested that this was the work of a professional. The first theory investigated by police was that Billy had been murdered due to his links to the Edinburgh sex industry. He'd recently sold the Orchard House Sauna in Edinburgh, but of course these premises had little to do with a sauna incorporating steam and high heat that make users perspire. It was all about selling sex. But as we have covered on this podcast many times before, the UK sex industry is changing, with many of the sex workers now from Eastern Europe, who have often been smuggled into the country against their will or on false pretenses, and then have no choice but to work selling sex. This organised trafficking by Eastern European mafia organisations were, well, and still are, big business, not just being related to people trafficking, but drugs and other illegal substances. Some have suggested that some of the gangs at the time muscling into the Edinburgh area were Russian and also involved in smuggling drugs from Afghanistan via Moscow. These weren't the men who Billy knew well and had grown up with and crossing these violent criminals could easily have been a reason for murder. Was Billy's death connected to the sex industry? Julie didn't think so and she was angered by these stories and rejected out of hand that her husband had been killed by the Russian mafia saying... I know for a fact that my Billy, if he owed money, would have paid it back. There were Russian girls at the sauna, but Billy and I were not running it at the time. He was no saint, I'm not saying that, but it's all been exaggerated. Police investigated this line of inquiry extensively, and then backed Julie's thoughts by making a public statement saying there was no evidence that Billy's death was connected to the sauna business. But by now... Detectives felt that the answer to who killed Billy lay in the local community, and they'd plenty of other leads to follow. One theory was that he'd crossed paths with a violent Glasgow gangland figure, Martin Hamilton, nicknamed the Butcher of Black Hill, who had quit his home city to ply his drugs trade and run his pub and brothel protection racket in Edinburgh. Have you heard of Hamilton before? If not, the way he operated is tough listening. As well as his gangster activities, Hamilton was a predatory homosexual who regularly abducted young men and raped them at gunpoint. One of Hamilton's associates cut off a young man's finger and tried to gouge out his eyes with a spoon. Another male victim was held prisoner for a week and repeatedly raped. Hamilton wasn't someone to get on the wrong side of for any reason and he was utterly ruthless in his operation. It was said that the reason he left Glasgow for Edinburgh was that his Glasgow associates were so fed up with how he worked. If they asked Hamilton to do a job, they couldn't be sure he'd do it and whether he'd not just pocket the cash himself. Or he'd abuse some guy involved for his own pleasure. He'd genuinely enjoyed causing pain. He wasn't good business anymore and no one in Glasgow would work with Hamilton. So he moved to Edinburgh. And he quickly made a big impact in Edinburgh's drug scene by making dealers an offer they really didn't want to refuse. Work for me or bleed for me? Most opted to work for him. Those who didn't, they tended to end up in hospital. And word spread quickly. The Scottish Daily Record reported that his people were hassling publicans, club owners and businessmen for protection money and he inspired such fear that one owner of a chain of pubs paid him £30,000 on demand. Some Edinburgh landlords did drugs business with him, but once you worked with Hamilton, exiting the contract wasn't such an easy matter. At least one club owner even sold off his business cheap and left town to escape the man from Glasgow. The Scottish Record alleges that Billy Sibold was said to have bought £100,000 worth of drugs from him and Billy also had an increasing cocaine problem which at that time was a very expensive drug. As Hamilton was controlling lots of the Edinburgh drug trade, did this lead to Billy owing Hamilton cash for drugs? Or was he refusing to pay up protection debts? Whatever the reason, Billy certainly owed Hamilton money. The record continued that Billy was frightened of Hamilton and went to Glasgow looking to hire another team to get rid of him, permanently. This wasn't Billy's style. It was the act of a desperate man. The trouble is, he went to Thomas the Licensee McGraw. Not the most trustworthy man on earth, even among gangsters. McGraw was, however, one of the most notorious gangsters that Glasgow's ever seen, spanning a career of over forty years which began in the sixties robbing local post offices. He amassed a fortune which was conservatively estimated at ten million pounds, and his speciality at the time was drug dealing. McGraw was also implicated in the notorious Ice Cream War's killings in 1984. If you recall, Thomas T.C. Campbell and Joe Steele spent 18 years in jail for the murders of six members of a Glasgow family, but they had their convictions quashed in March 2004, and Campbell later accused McGraw of being the man responsible. By going to a man such as McGraw, Billy was moving into the big leagues where the prizes but also the potential risks were severe. McGraw agreed to do the job on Hamilton, took the money and did nothing. It's an old street trick when the customer is a non-violent member of the public. What was Billy going to do about it? Tell the police? Threaten McGraw, one of the main gangsters in Scotland? I don't think so. But then Hamilton was jailed for life in 2000, two years before Billy was killed, when finally someone gave evidence against him. Ten previous cases had collapsed. But then Hamilton went too far. An 18-year-old boy had gone to Hamilton's Glasgow base to get drugs but didn't return. When his girlfriend, also 18, went to the flat, she found the boy unconscious on the floor. Aware of Hamilton's reputation, she started a screaming row and he punched her. Brave or stupid, you decide. But she then smashed a lump over his head. Not sure I'd have done that. Driven to a flat in Glasgow's Anderson area, the petrified couple were made to stand in the bath so the blood could easily be washed away. Then came the most horrific ten-hour ordeal. Hamilton shouted out the orders and watched as a knife was pushed through their cheeks. Then they were told water was being boiled and Hamilton went crazy, shouting, screaming and pouring it over them, scarring them for life. It probably wasn't the most horrific torture session that Hamilton had ever orchestrated but it was his last for a long time. He had finally picked on two people brave enough to give evidence in court. From his cell in Perth Hamilton swore revenge against all those who had gone against him. Did this include Billy Sibold I wonder? McGraw of course knew all about Billy's debts to Hamilton but with Hamilton now out of the way McGraw sent his men to collect the money that was owed. Not McGraw himself, of course, but men like Billy McPhee, one of his most trusted enforcers. McGraw's team had particular methods of persuading debtors. Most call it torture, and it is suggested that with Billy Sibold, maybe the torture went too far, as it was really the money they wanted from him. There was no need to actually kill him. He was more used to them financially alive. Others have speculated it was a message being sent to others on the fringes of the Edinburgh underworld. But if he was killed by McGraw's people, exactly who was it that murdered Billy? Billy McPhee, who I just mentioned, was certainly used extensively by McGraw to collect debts for him. But Billy McPhee isn't around to answer any questions anymore. He was in a Brewer's Fair pub in Glasgow in March 2003, watching the Six Nations rugby match between Scotland and Wales at Murrayfield. If you know the Brewer's Fair chain... You'll know it's a family restaurant common for children's parties. After around 20 minutes of the match, a young man entered the pub wearing a grey hooded top and denims, but the hood wasn't up and his face was in full view. He walked up to where Billy McPhee was sitting on a bar stool and stabbed him over 20 times in the head, body and face. McPhee fell to the floor covered in blood as terrified families looked on. McPhee, who had survived an earlier attempt on his life the previous November after being shot in the face outside a social club in Glasgow, was not so lucky this time and he died at the scene. Surprisingly, a man was charged with McPhee's murder. Less surprisingly, the case collapsed after just one day when the key evidence from the two witnesses was seen as less than reliable. And his boss McCraw, he's no longer around to answer any questions. When McPhee was murdered, it was the third of McGraw's key men who'd been killed in just a year as his enemies circled his patch. 32-year-old Trevor Lawson died after being hit by a car near his home in Stirlingshire after fleeing from a fight. Then another trusted lieutenant, Gordon Ross, was knifed to death after being lured from a pub nearby. This led McGraw to semi-retire and his reign as Glasgow's crime boss was coming to a close. Increasingly he spent his time either in Spain, in Ireland or his heavily fortified bungalow in Scotland watching countless repeats of Star Trek. On the 30th of July 2007, for a man of extreme violence he died in the most unexpected way. Naturally, he had a heart attack. The minister at his funeral noted his film interest quipping somewhat bizarrely over the coffin Beam me up Scotty. A year later, his widow and former business partner Margaret, who was also known as the jeweller for her love of bling, was exposed dealing cocaine door-to-door from a high-end car. McGraw's only son, Billy Winky, was found dead in his home in 2003. And his drug-addicted brother, Francis, was knifed to death in October, three months later. So with McPhee and McGraw dead, how about Hamilton? Would he be able to tell of what had happened to Billy Sibbold? But alas, the butcher of Black Hill, Hamilton, is also no longer around and able to grow any of his secrets. A year after being released from the slammer, Hamilton's remains were found in Scottish woods by a dog walker. Yep, here we go again, another one, in December 2015. The 53-year-old had not been seen since April the 16th that year. I noticed a death notice placed in a local newspaper which described Hamilton as a beloved son to his mum Margaret, a loving brother, a much-loved uncle, great-uncle and friend to many. A friend to many, indeed. At the end of January 2016, police arrested a 52-year-old local man, James Farrelly, over Hamilton's death. Farrelly was accused of killing Hamilton by shooting him in the head and inflicting blunt and sharp force injuries. He was further accused of being concerned in the supply of cocaine. Like McCraw, Farrelly was another man of violence who died of a terminal illness before he could face trial, just 53. At his funeral, Farrelly's brother gave some insight into his brother's life, explaining that he'd lost one boyhood job delivering newspapers after he started returning home with stolen milk, eggs and bread. He added that next, he got a paper round in another shop he was pinching all the sweets, taking them to school and selling them. The grieving sibling also revealed their mum was woken one night by cops who'd nicked the young Farrelly, he added. From then on in, we would quite a few visits to the police station. For many a year he'd spend Christmas and holiday, courtesy of Her Majesty. It was just the way he was. He was just a little rascal from the word go. Despite extensive investigations... Police were never able to prove any gangland link to the murder of Billy Sibold. A reward of thousands of pounds put up by the family in the aftermath of his death brought in nothing. All police received by means of help from the public was an anonymous letter containing newspaper clippings and a name, but no action was taken. Billy Sibold's wife Julie has denied suggestions that her husband was a gangland figure who dabbled in heroin deals, and rubbed shoulders with some of the notorious criminals we've heard about today. It's ludicrous, she said at the time. My kids have got to grow up listening to this stuff about their dad, but none of it has been proven. He was a great dad. He was just your typical laughing, giving father. Everyone that knew him locally, his friends, would all tell you the same thing. He was good-natured and good-humoured. Ten years passed from Billy's death and in 2012 on the anniversary the Sibold family released a statement expressing their hope that someone has the compassion and humility to come forward with information. We have spent 10 Christmases, birthdays and Father's days without knowing how or why the one person who should be here to celebrate with us died, they said. We have, and will always miss, having a husband, dad and brother at these family occasions, and we hope someone somewhere has the compassion and humility to come forward to help the police and to help our family. Detective Inspector Scott Cunningham added, It's now been ten years since Billy Sibold was murdered, and we've never given up in our efforts to bring those responsible to justice. His family were robbed of a loving husband and father in the cruelest of circumstances, and we remain as determined as ever to achieve justice for them. We firmly believe that the key to solving his murder lies in the local community and we are appealing directly to anyone with information to come forward and help Billy's family put his memory to rest. As of today, March 2018, there has still not been anyone brought to trial for the murder of Billy Sibold. A police spokesman confirmed that the murder inquiry continues, saying the investigation into the murder of Billy Sibold remains unsolved and as such, continues to be an open investigation. As with any unsolved murder investigation, the case will be reviewed to determine whether further police action is required. So what do you make of what we've heard today? As regular listeners will know, it's rare for me to cover unsolved crimes, but there are so many aspects to this crime which I hope you have found interesting. What do you think happened to Billy? And will his family ever get the justice he deserved? or have the people responsible taken their secrets to their graves. I think we can all say that the evidence suggests that Billy McPhee, working for McGraw, is a clear suspect in the murder. And I think we can all agree that it's hard to believe that there's no one in the local community who does not know exactly what happened to Billy Sibbalt. According to the Scottish Sun, Billy, just before his death, told his sister Lorraine that he did not worry about dying, as he'd be reunited with their other siblings, Catherine and Avril, who both passed away tragically young. And then six weeks later, he was dead. Did he suspect at this stage that he was in big trouble? We of course feel sorry for his wife, Julie, his children, and his other friends and family who must live without him. But I also feel sorry for Billy, and the fear he must have felt before his death. His sister Lorraine makes the same point, saying... I think about him getting taken from that house and how frightened he must have felt. At first, we heard stories that a shotgun had been used. I know this may sound strange, but I thought that that would have been better as it would have been quicker and he would not have suffered. But he was stabbed. He did not deserve to die that way. He was a happy-go-lucky person who just saw the good in people. He did not realise how nasty people out there can actually be. I just kept thinking, how could they do that to him? They were just animals. They've taken the heart out of our family. I will never, ever get over the death of Billy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to our Facebook group to discuss this case or any other aspect of UK true crime. To support the show and help me keep producing it every week and listen to 13- full-length bonus episodes, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. That's all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, cheerio. Selling a little
0: or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Go to Shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do.